On this week's episode of Black Diplomats, I sit down with Brian Whitmore of The Power Vertical, a podcast on Eastern European politics. We talked about Alexei Navalny, the crisis in Georgia, my upcoming memoir, and other fun stuff. Let's get to the show. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас никто не слушает. В России сегодня вступают в силу поправки в Конституцию. Привет, это Навальный. Делаю Я уже безопасности. С Новым годом вас. С Новым веком. Imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny announced this week that he was going on a hunger strike. The move came amid reports that Navalny's health is deteriorating and his supporters are claiming that the Kremlin is slowly killing him in prison. Navalny's announcement came just weeks after Amnesty International's controversial decision to revoke his prisoner of conscious status over xenophobic statements he made more than a decade ago. Today, we'll talk about Navalny as well as other issues from Russia and the former Soviet Union with a guest who's sure to bring a fresh perspective to the discussion. I've really been looking forward to doing this show for a while, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from New York City is somebody I've wanted to have on this podcast for a very long time. Terrell Germain Starr is, like me, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Terrell is also a senior reporter at The Root, where he writes about U.S.-Russia relations and about race in America. He's also the host and founder of the podcast Black Diplomats, which explores foreign affairs from a black perspective. Terrell lived in Ukraine as a Fulbright fellow and a freelance journalist, and in Georgia as a Peace Corps volunteer. He's also the author of the forthcoming book, Black Man on the Steps, which is a memoir about his time in the former Soviet Union. Welcome to the vertical, Terrell. It's really awesome to finally have you on. Yeah, I'm really happy that you invited me on. I've been following your work for quite a long time and I've always wanted to meet you and so we're both coincidentally um fellows at the Atlantic Council so hey all all of the yeah. stars are aligning together right <laughs> yeah I know it's uh, I'm glad we finally made the connection it was on a meeting of AC fellows that you and I actually met for the first time but ever since I heard your really insightful interview with Ben Rhodes on Pod Save the World, which is a podcast that I love. I never miss an episode. Earlier this year, I've been meaning to bring you on to the podcast and glad we could finally finally make it happen. So what I thought we could do is, is talk about various issues that you have been writing about and commenting on uh, in the first half of the show. And then below the fold, we're going to have like a, a discussion about your upcoming memoir, which I'm, I'm pretty fascinated with. What, a, what an awesome working title, man. You want to sell books, that's a, that's a good title. So let's start with Navalny, who's again, of course, back in the news with his announcement this week that he's going on a hunger strike until he receives medical treatment from a doctor of his choice. Um, in an op-ed for the Washington Post this week, the Russian opposition figure Vladimir Karaborza, a friend of this podcast and himself a survivor of two assassination attempts, accused the Kremlin of trying to slowly kill Navalny in prison. Now, Terrell, a few weeks back, when the controversy over amnesties revoking Navalny's prisoner of conscious status 
erupted, you wrote what I considered was a very thoughtful and very nuanced op-ed for the Washington Post on the matter that, quite frankly, did track my own uh, thinking on the matter. Because on the one hand, I'm a big admirer of Navalny, and that's no secret. Anybody that knows my work knows I admire the man, and I admire him for his anti-corruption crusading, which is a central issue for me. And I admire him for getting Russians to think of themselves as citizens, which is which is radical um, and, and necessary. But at the same time, his past comments, um, which were made 2000, you know, but more than a decade ago, but nevertheless, he's never apologized for him. He's never distanced himself from him. He's made some. I mean, to call them xenophobic is actually quite polite. These were flat out racist yes. comments. These were flat out racist <laughs> flat comments. Out racist. Um, yeah. He compared yeah. South Asian migrants and Chechens to cockroaches, dressed up as an exterminator. Um, and, and put the video out. Another where he's dressed up as a dentist comparing, you know, uh, ethnic minorities to, to tooth decay. I mean, not only were they racist, they were also quite childish, in, 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 in my opinion. He seems to have moved beyond that. But now, for our listeners who, who may not have read your, your op-ed, and if they haven't, they really should, what's your take on Navalny? How do you see this? How do you reconcile his civic activism, his nationalism, his xenophobic past? Uh, recount for the, the arguments you made in, in your Washington Post op-ed. Well, thank you, Brian. I really appreciate you giving me time to really talk about this. So first and foremost, we understand that Putin's totalitarian regime um, basically, you know, suppresses anyone like Navalny, anybody that wants to seek their own liberation. And so the the piece that I wrote for the, uh, for, for, for the Washington Post, actually, it speaks to my personal beliefs that every person has the right to feel liberated. And that is something that Navalny does. And I think when we go to the decision of Amnesty International, uh, their their decision to um, take back their uh, prisoner of conscience status was actually a bad idea. And the reason why I said that in the context of what he's, of his past statements is that one, there's somebody on your team that has to know Russian, right? I mean, I mean, it's, it, there's plenty of information in English, okay? <laughs> I mean, there is ample information in English. If you just search Navalny racism, you will run into a plethora of things that he has said in countless interviews with journalists in which he doesn't regret what he says. And I'll dive into that um, in, in a moment, but... It was a bad choice because one, it just shows how shoddy your research was, um, and, and to, or if you did any at all. And so it's like, okay, and the timing could not have been worse. And so it plays into a lot of Navalny supporters' fears that um, they had they, that the amnesty succumbed to propaganda, Kremlin talking points. They have a very legitimate reason to feel that way. The 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 challenge though is that Navalny, even though these statements are made in the past, I believe that a lot of his supporters, and by the way, I am somebody who supports Navalny. I, I want to make that clear. And I think that I did a good job of making that clear in my piece for the Washington Post, okay? Uh, uh, the issue is that he has not had an in-depth conversation about how he renounced those views that is proportionate to how he articulated them years ago. And so you just can't say, oh, He's gone above it. He doesn't talk about it anymore. You simply saying, I just stopped saying racist things doesn't mean you don't believe them. Okay. And, right. and, 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 and so, and, and so there is a great deal of gray area that the Kremlin can manipulate. And so I do understand people's response that 
hey, uh, Navalny is, uh, he's just been poisoned. He's, um, he, you know, he is um, in, in, in a fight for his life. That's all very real. But when you don't take care of issues like that, they come up to bite you in the butt. And that's what's happening right now with Navalny. He's had a number of opportunities in interviews to say, you know what? I was wrong. I was apologize and I apologize. I even cited an interview they did with someone and I forgot the man's name. Um, I believe he's an economist who's who's based in, in, in Paris. I forgot the man's name. Forgive uh, me. But 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 you know who I'm talking about. Not in the view. Yeah, not, yeah, yeah. And he gets he gets defensive in these interviews. I've seen it. I, I'm not, I don't know the interview you're talking about, but I saw an interview he did with Ksenia Sopcek uh, mm -hmm. years back. And she was pressing him hard. I mean, Ksenia is one tough woman. And she was yeah. pushing him hard. And he would get defensive. He was visibly irritated. And I was like, dude, man, just say, you know, I was young and stupid and I made some stupid remarks and I disavow them now. Please just say well, that. But, but Brian, yes, Brian, but yes, correct. But here's the thing, though. And I think, look, I am someone, I cover race in America for a living. That is my job. My job is to literally think about race. I get paid to think about it from a domestic standpoint and from an international standpoint. I do not believe that a person's, you know, I, I believe someone like Navalny, every human being has a right to grow and to develop and become better human beings. I am fondly believe, I believe that, I believe that with any person, whether there's some white racist KKK hood wearing person in America or elsewhere, I believe that that has a lot to do with my faith, but it also has a lot to do with the fact that no human being is disposable. No human being is quote unquote cancelable per se, right? And so Navalny needs to be given grace if he earns it. The problem is that he hasn't. And so he obviously can't do that right now because Putin is literally trying to kill him in a prison, right? So all these things are also true. So I think the takeaway from all of this and what I wrote in my article is that with Amnesty International, they actually made the situation worse um, because if you really want to have a conversation about race and diversity and everything like that, a, a more constructive approach, one, they shouldn't have taken away that status. I, I, I'm completely against that, right? I'm completely against that. Uh, two, there was there could have been a more constructive way that Amnesty International could have used their platform to talk about these issues and press his team to do it than to outright take it away because it makes it feel as though they've abandoned him. And that's not fair to Navalny because you gave it to him and now you're taking it back. I mean, how, how, how awful and off yeah. is that? Yeah, yeah. No, that was really awkward. I mean, some of the things, a lot of things about this bothered me. It bothered me on so many levels. One level that bothered me is that the embassy's decision to revoke the status came after a very visible campaign from Kremlin surrogates online. Um, yeah. Now, that's true. That's indisputable. But you and I are sitting here bringing this issue up, and we're not Kremlin surrogates. So I don't like the idea right. of anybody <laughs> bringing this up is a Kremlin surrogate. That's not the case, right? But right. it's something we should discuss. But it is – we have to be mindful of the fact that this is something the Kremlin is using. The other thing that I, I can't really wrap my head around – I mean we obviously can't get inside the man's head. We, we don't know what's truly in his heart. But I there are different theories about Navalny, that he has outgrown these things and he's embarrassed about them and just doesn't want to talk about them anymore, that his financial backers have told him to cut it out because this is bad optics. That's another – you know that's a less charitable interpretation. I've heard that one. And there's another one, the least charitable interpretation, is that 
these views are shared by a lot of Russians and are shared by a lot of Navalny supporters. And he's, he's, he's something of a populist as well as an anti-corruption crusader and a civic activist. And I worry that he just thinks it's not politically wise for him to back off. I don't know which of you have, and we obviously don't know because we can't get inside right. the man's head. We don't know what's in his heart. What's your sense? Well, well, you know, Brian, that's a very good question here. The one point I'll touch on, which I think is definitely verifiable, is that there are a lot of Russian intellectuals who think like him. Okay. So, yeah. so, so let's, so, 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 so let's just have, you know, put, put it that way. And you saw it when the conversations revolved around uh, Black Lives Matter movement, right? And so there are a lot of disparaging views that a lot of Russian intellectuals have, you know, and political intellectuals have about black people about BLM in America, right? And so- So I, allegedly know, liberal Russians have. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, know. yeah, yes, absolutely. And so I believe that this is larger than Navalny, you know, which I think Amnesty International, if I were advising them that I would put them to task for is that this is much larger than him. And so that further goes to my point that you're targeting him and it's not fair. Right. And, you know, and it's like, OK, Navalny had this issue because let's look, look, Brian, we've devoted our lives to this part of the world. We've gone to school. We've studied the languages. We're in the think tank world. We know how to distinguish, you know, uh, fact from fiction. The average American does not. The average person in the world is not going to have the the intellectual bandwidth or the bandwidth in general to parse out all of this stuff like we are. Right. And so. This is a larger conversation with uh, with Russian intellectuals. And so by constructively addressing it in Russia writ large and by platforming people from Central Asia who are critical, you know, there is a better way to have this national reckoning with race in Russia. Because another thing you have to think about, too, is that a lot of people will tell you that there's no such thing as racism in Russia. They will say that this is an American. There is an American conception that's being forced upon our Slavic lands. And we all know that that's a bunch of BS. And that's the default. Well, race in Russia is not like it is in America. And there, you know, I don't want to get into the weeds of it, but there is, for all of America's faults, which I write about daily, you know, there is a national discourse where minority groups are empowered politically and socially. And that same dynamic is not happening in Russia. It just isn't. For a large reason, yeah. for, for a wide range of geographic, ethnic, you know, disbursement issues across the country, that, that issue is not happening, which explains why this national discourse about race isn't as potent as it is here in the United States. Well, because we have the institutions to deal with. I mean, for me, I'm an institutionalist. It really comes down to institutions, that, that we have institutions that are lacking in Russia. Um, we have institutions like an independent civil society. We have institutions like a free press, where these issues, where we as Americans can work these issues out, right? right. It's, it's harder in a society like Russia where you don't have these strong institutions. They kill journalists. I mean, shit. I mean, I'm part of my language. I mean, <laughs> I mean how, how can you have a conversation when you kill truth tellers? I mean, <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah, no, what I, I mean, I would agree with you. This was a, an opportunity missed in this situation. Um, it's, it was missed by amnesty. It's to a degree, and it's hard to blame Navalny. Like you said, he's in, he's, you know, Putin's trying to kill him in a prison right now. It was an opportunity missed in the past to, he is one of the people that could have led a national discussion in Russia about this. And people would have listened to him and his words would have mattered. And I don't think he would have lost that much support, quite frankly. And, you know, quite frankly, the support he would have lost, I'd say good riddance to that support, you know? Quite yeah, good riddance to that support. Yeah, Brian, good, good riddance to that support. 
But also, you know, the reason why I have these conversations, and I really want the listeners to tune in and listen to this part, at least in America, right? Our foreign policy space, the reason, and we're going to talk about this later in the show about my own podcast and the reason why I do what I do is that, look, uh, President Biden, he's doing it domestically, but a President Biden may not have a, a vigorous conversation with Navalny about race, but a potential President Kamala Harris will, remember, who is also of Asian descent, I, you know, we know what's going on with the the way that the political dynamics are taking place in America, you know, and, and keep in mind that a lot of Russian dissidents, a lot of people who flee Russia, they, they come to America, they come to D.C., right? And so all these predominantly white institutions are dealing with their own reckonings with race. And so the reason why we need to talk about who Navalny is, the, the, the good, the bad, and the negative, and what to improve is that as our foreign policy space diversify diversifies these questions are going to invariably come up okay and so we need to get ready okay because again if a a potential president kamala harris is not going to ask these you know like if she'll definitely ask those questions but keep in mind you have an emerging stacy abrams you have all these people of color who are coming through the ranks and who are gunning for the white house and they care very deeply about these issues you have stacy abrams Talking about talking about identity politics within a foreign policy context, these conversations are going to happen. So it would behoove us, as people who care about this region, to encourage our colleagues in the Russia and Eastern European and Eurasian space to care about these things because the power brokers that are coming up in America certainly will. Yeah, no, I would think Terrell, you're absolutely right for two reasons. There, one reason we're going to talk about this later in the podcast. I really want to get your views on this. Is that to the extent that we can deal with our race issues in the U.S., we can enhance our own national security because hostile foreign actors like Russia are trying to exploit those divisions very, very explicitly on social media, and they're succeeding in a lot of ways. I mean, remember the 2016 election where Russian trolls organized two protests, uh, one by BLM and one by the KKK in the same town, right? And they fooled Americans and set Americans against Americans on the streets over the issue of race, which, you know, I don't have to tell you is a highly combustible issue here. To the extent that we can deal with this issue, we can protect ourselves from malign and hostile foreign actors. And I think that's really important. And the flip side of it is this is a conversation Russians need to have because there are serious issues there with regard to this without the institutional framework to work them out. I could go on forever on this, but I want to move on to some of your other work because I've been following your podcast and um, you've been doing a, a great series on Georgia, talking to all the different parties in Georgia. I just did a, a program a few weeks back about the political situation in Georgia. I care very deeply about Georgia. It's a, the former Soviet, Georgia and Ukraine are two former Soviet republics that I, I truly fell in love with in my time. I came over there, you know, as a Russian speaker, spending most of my time in Russia, but the more time I spent in Georgia, the more I fell in love with the place. But Georgia's having a rough, a rough go of it right now. It's, it's, um, it's, you know, many of us who consider ourselves to be friends of Georgia have been deeply concerned about their backsliding on democracy, and a concomitant slippage. And the two things aren't unrelated back into the Russian sphere of influence. I think this is a very, very dangerous moment in Georgia right now. I had two Georgians, uh, Shota Glineri and Etubuziashvili, two of my really good friends, uh, on the on the podcast a few weeks back. You have been interviewing leaders of the Georgian opposition on your podcast. You've been trying to get members of the, the ruling party, I think, with less success. I got them on this week. I got them on this week. Good. Yeah. Um, how do you see 
the situation in Georgia, and how do you see Russia's role in stoking that country's troubles? Boy, oh boy. So let me start off by saying that, yes, there's definitely black a backslide in democracy uh, in, in Georgia. What I'll also say is that the issue is a lot more complicated and it's not as black and white as people are making, you know, as some people may think that it is. And if someone gives you a straight black and white issue, I, you know, I would respectfully have to question if they fully understand, you know, the, 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 the nuances of what's happening there. And so I've interviewed ooh, uh, pretty much most of, you know, uh, representatives from most of the opposition and including the ruling party, Georgia Dream. So, you know, uh, for full, and a, a very brief synopsis, just for listeners who are probably not familiar with Georgian politics, back in, um, in, in October, there were parliamentary elections that took place. And so Georgia Dream won, I believe, 90 seats, right? There are 150 okay. seats in the Georgian parliament. And so they, they're they up by, what, 30, 30 plus seats, right? And so the opposition is saying that a wide range of voter irregularities took place. And so they have refused to be in parliament. And so right now is that, but, but and that's been going on since October. And so in my conversations with the opposition, my, my questions are, who are you and what do you, what future do you see for Georgia but more particularly, what are your grievances? Uh, and some of the things that they're saying is that um, there has been, you know, forced support of Georgia Dream in all of the ministries, you know, at the at the civil serve at the civil service level, right? You know, and then administrative methods, yeah, administrate, yes, administrative, but yes, but then they're also saying that uh, for all the people like the OSCE and other observatory groups that came out. Um, because of the COVID restrictions, they weren't out in full force. And that's something that a lot of the opposition leaders have told me um, that have um, really restricted any um, real observations of voter irregularities. And then there is also um, an accusation by the opposition parties. All of them told me that the use of, in Georgian, uh, they say kuchas bichebi, which translates into street boys. Okay, you know, like the the street the street boys are going up to the polls and threatening people to vote for Georgia Dream or else. Now, here's the thing: a brief note on that. That happened. That that has happened in Georgian politics. Yeah. The Kuchas Bichab is a very real thing. It's not something that's brought out of your imagination. Like that's something that legitimately happens. But the larger point is that um, a lot of the international observers, and I've told the opposition this, is that they. Um, there are we understand your concerns, but you haven't given us very like any real proof, right? I mean, these are things that you see people happening, but there's not you're not giving us proof. And then two, just because you have some irregularities, that doesn't necessarily mean that would have changed the outcome of the elections. Because what they're because what the opposition is basically saying is that Georgia Dream stole 30 seats. That's essentially what they're arguing. But it's also about the structure of how parliament is elected and they were trying to change it to a proportional system, which case the opposition would have done a lot better. So there's more structural. They have very legitimate points in that regard. Um, but the Georgia dream, according to the people that I've spoken to, they're fine with those reforms. What they refuse to see on is snap elections and the release of political prisoners, namely you have Nika uh, Millennia. And so let's so 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 here's the thing that a lot of people don't know. Uh, Millennia is not in jail 
he's not being permanently detained in jail. He just refuses to pay the bail. Right. And so right. there, so, so, so there are, and so, and that's something that Georgia dream told me, all he has to do is pay his bail. Now, on the other hand, in the millennium was like, you know, these charges are trumped up. And so on principle, I'm not going to pay it. Well, he's right about that. I, I was, I, I, I would agree. Yeah. yeah. I was there in June, 2020. I know what happened in front of the parliament in June of 2020. And these charges are in fact trumped up and that was provoked. Uh, yeah. So I, 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 I can't really fault him for that. My issue. I mean, all these things about, you know, do you elect parliament and single member districts or, or proportional representation and did Georgia Dream steal 30 seats? These things are all um, subordinate to the larger issue that concerns not just the opposition in parliament, but generally Georgian civil society. And that is that the country is effectively ruled by an unelected, unaccountable oligarch who many, I think, without not without good cause, believed to be a, a, a Russian proxy. And that is, of course, Bidzina Ivanishvili, um, the, the oligarch who basically finances Georgia Dream, who earned all his money in Russia, just suddenly right. popped up in Georgia in 2012 and bought an election. Yeah. And so, I mean, and not to say the previous government wasn't without its faults. I was a critic of Mikhail Saakashvili beforehand. But I had big hopes that maybe if Georgia Dream came to power, it was a broad coalition. It was going to turn into a, maybe a multi-party system. I, that was, those were my hopes. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. The coalition slowly, slowly got smaller and smaller and smaller. Every party that was truly democratic and truly pro-Western was either pushed out or left, starting with Iraqli Alassania and followed by the Republicans, the Georgian Republicans, not to be confused with the American Republicans. But, uh, but uh, so th these, these are my concerns. I've seen this backsliding in democracy going for a while. And right now what we're seeing is the climax of it. And I'm, I'm worried for my Georgian friends. And when I talk to them, they are worried. They, and they here's the thing they they ought to be worried now there are there are a few things so let's go back to 2012 when Georgia Dream took power they took power because United National Movement became a became a bit too authoritarian for Georgians taste okay and so they squandered that opportunity and that's something that that you know you can representatives from United National Movement will they may not explicitly say that, but they will acknowledge that they squandered yeah, opportunity. They you know what I'm saying? In they, private, they in private, yeah. So they're not going to say it publicly, but they, they, they're not going to say it publicly, but privately, they'll tell you that, right? And so, and, and not only that, Misha, and, you know, uh, Mikhail Shagashuli, but, you know, Misha, um, and, and he, he started backsliding into an authoritarian uh, leader towards the, towards the yeah 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 but yeah but pretty much at the at the end at the end of his first term right because people thought it was his second term but it was really at the beginning i mean i mean at the end of his last term that you start seeing these different shifts right you know and so basically what's happening is that when georgia dream came came in people were hoping for you know like you said a better more you know like an advancement of what shock street is doing because that's the thing everybody you know i go to georgia every year um, everybody will say we're, we, we're tired of Misha, but we, but, but George wouldn't be where it is without him, but let's go back to George, but let's go back to Georgia dream. The problem is that all, for all the points that you stated, yes, they have engaged in, you know, in the backslide of, uh, of, of democracy and Ivani Shwili, let's talk about him. He made all of his money in Russia. My response to that is who didn't, you know, a, a, a lot of people, made their cash in Russia. Now, you go to a place like Georgia, and it's very different from Ukraine that we both know, you know, and love, right? Yeah. 
you know, you know, and so like the oligarch, you know, the, the oligarchy in Georgia, you know, is a lot more potent than it is in Ukraine, just as simply as not as many of them. Okay, then number two, you know, then number two, then another thing is that when you have somebody like that, um, you know, who it who 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 is in power, I don't necessarily I see Ivani Shwili, do I believe the concerns that you know, uh, he he definitely operates the the party. I do believe that. Do I also believe that he is like a Russian stooge per se? I'm not. I'm not. I haven't been convinced of that. He's basically a caretaker of of Gazprom's money. Basically, is what I what I've been hearing. Yeah, me too. Well, I want to see some some reporting on this. I want to see some Georgian journalists do some digging and show me this. And then then we got a potent argument. We got a potent argument to sanction Shinivani Shvili, if that is the case. You know, another thing, Brian, you know, the irony of this is that uh, Alexei Navalny is an incredible investigative journalist. If he were here in America, he would have won several Pulitzer Prizes. You know, oh, yeah. okay, so <laughs> that's that's the oh, irony. Yeah, no, you are right. <laughs> right, I mean, that man would have won. I mean, he was he is, and and he makes things so simple, right? And and, and um, and that's his strength. But you know, we need some Alexei Navalny level type of investigative reporting on this. And yeah, so 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 you're definitely correct about that. Now, one of the things that the Georgian opposition have told me is that they, you know. They think in this third iteration, because, you know, in, in the new Georgia, because remember the first, the first iteration post uh, Edward Shevardnadze, um, you right. know, started with George, you know, started with Shaka Shwili, now it's Georgia Dream. Now, Georgian opposition leaders are telling me that they see the next, the third iteration of Georgian politics as coalition sharing, because anytime you give power to one particular party, they don't know how to handle it. Exactly. Right. So, so yeah. that's what they're trying to do right now. And so... In these in the second round of talks that didn't result in the opposition going back to parliament because that's what that's that's what the opposition um that's 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 what the uh Georgian dream wants is that they are agreeing on these reforms pretty much on principle and I've spoken to folks who are in the room and they say they're fine with that but the main th thing that Georgia dream refuses to see again is that they're not doing these snap elections the reason why they say this and, and what they've told me is that if we do snap elections, we're going to go back to the wild, wild west years of, of the uh, of the 1990s, whatever Shevardnadze. Now, whether we want to call BS on that or not, that's what they're telling me. Right. Yeah. You no, know. I, I've heard that argument. I mean, I think you're right, Terrell. Exactly. Georgia has gone through this cycle and it's gone through it. Let's see. Gamza Herdia, Shevardnadze, Saakashvili, Ivanishvili, four times. I mean, the first post-Soviet president yeah, of Georgia, yeah, Gamsa Hurdia. Yeah, four times. Yeah, Gamsa Hurdia. Wow. He didn't, he didn't live long enough. Right? Came in, won an election with a huge mandate, started ruling like an authoritarian, was kicked out, and in comes Shepard Nazi. With a huge mandate, starts ruling like an authoritarian, gets kicked out. Saakashvili comes in with a huge mandate, starts ruling, you know, one-party rule with a, with a huge mandate becomes authoritarian, gets kicked out. We're seeing this cycle repeat itself for the fourth time. I agree with you and I agree with the opposition on this is where the, the next iteration of Georgian politics has to go is to a true coalition government where you don't have one party that has all the power. And I'm hoping that's where we're going to go. I wish I could say I'm optimistic about it at the moment, but I, I at the moment I'm not so optimistic. But but here's the thing, Mark Brian. So here are a couple of things. See, we got to have some optimism from for, for Georgians. One, let's, I want to talk about an issue um, you know, you, you brought up earlier, but we didn't talk about yet. Georgia is such a pro-Western country. I do not see Russia being able to manipulate this as they would say in Ukraine, right? Particularly with the, you know, so, so Ukraine has its own issues 
you know, with ethnic Russian splits divided, whatever. But, you know, I don't, so, so Georgians are very pro-NATO. Georgians are very pro-European Union. And so I, I think it would be very difficult, even though you have this whole Ivanishvili dynamic, the idea is that, you know, the, the idea is that you have Georgia dream, you know, that is pushing towards European Union and NATO membership. Uh, they're going to apply in 2024 for European Union membership. And we can have conversations about how devoted they are to that, but they cannot be an openly pro-Russia party. You can't do that in Georgia. Okay. And so you can't, you can't do that. You can't, you can't do that in Georgia. You can increasingly not do that in Ukraine. <laughs> you, well, oh, well, here's the thing. Like this current, yeah, you can't, no, you can't do that in Ukraine either. In fact, in the past, Ooh, we, you know, after the, the invasion, no, oh, no, no, post oh, oh, they're dead. Like you're, you're not. So whatever. No, no, they're, they're gone. If you go around, um, I don't know. I, I go to Ukraine and, and I'm, you know, um, we, we, we'll have, to, we'll, we'll have this conversation later, but basically, cause I, I was going to tell you about my travels in Ukraine, we observed, but going back to Georgia, I, um, I think we should have confidence in the intelligence and the savvy of the Georgian people. You know, because if you look at recent polling, right, none of these parties are particularly popular. If you look at the recent, if you, so if you look at NDI's recent um, polls of Georgian attitudes towards the parties, you'll see that Georgian dream is in the majority, but it's not by much. You know, when you think about their popularity, they're around 30% or something like right. that. And if you're the, and then you have about 50% who are unsure or average or whatever the case yeah. may be. No, Georgians are fed up with everybody right now. Well, I think what you're right that we should not give up on the intelligence of the Georgian people. What has to happen is that Georgia's friends in the West, in this town that I'm in, um, as well as in other Western capitals, need to step it up again and, and start engaging Georgia because we've been kind of absent. We could do this forever, Terrell, but I got to yeah, move yeah. to the second half right. to talk about your book. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and talk about Terrell's forthcoming memoir about his time in the former Soviet Union, which, like I said, has the awesome title, Black Man on the Steps. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from New York City is Terrell Jermaine Starr, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, a senior reporter at The Root, and the host and founder of the podcast Black Diplomats and author of the forthcoming book, Black Man on the Steps. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in and if you do please leave us a rating and review you can also access the podcast read the power vertical blog and access all power vertical products at powervertical.org and you can follow us on the twitter at power vertical внимание говорит и показывает москва Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... годом вас. С новым веком. So, Terrell, in, in some ways, you and I have followed pretty similar paths. We spent a lot of time in the former Soviet Union as young men. We continue to make regular working trips there later in our careers. We both, as we noted in the first half, have this feel this really strong connection to and interest in Ukraine and Georgia. But unlike me, you bring a very interesting and valuable perspective to this experience, which I'm really looking forward to reading about in your book. Because, like, you know, I don't have to tell you, Terrell, I'm, I'm, I'm in the kind of post-Soviet watching community here in D.C., and whenever I'm in a room, there's a lot of white faces there. 
right? And so I'm I'm really interested in this book, and I want to give you a chance to talk about it and talk about your own story, how you became interested in this part of the world, what your experience there were like. And I, I like to keep the second half of the podcast casual and less structured. Just just two colleagues chatting in a bar over a beer. Remember when we could do that? Man, do I miss that. So yeah, to, get things, yeah. <laughs> to get things rolling, what is Black Man on the Steps about? What's the story you're trying to tell here? Black Man on the Steps is about the story of me, Terrell Jermaine Starr, who grew up, uh, I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, the blackest city in America, and all in at um and how growing up in Detroit, but not only just Detroit, but just the uh growing up in a poor part of Detroit. Uh both my uncle sold drugs and and my and we grew up, we were pretty much in poverty. Um, we didn't think that we were in poverty, but economically we very much were, and we had plenty of food to eat and everything, but we still, you know, were one situation away from being on the streets in many respects. Uh, so it's about how that experience growing up in that neighbor, growing up in my neighborhood where I saw, uh, gang violence, you know, you name it, the boys in the hood type of, uh, of experience, how that experience culminated to me getting an opportunity to go to this, go to Russia to volunteer in a Russian orphanage and how that sparked for, for a summer when I was in college and then how that experience kicked off a path for me to go into Peace Corps and then for me to be the first person from the University of Illinois to get a degree in Russian, East European and Eurasian studies, et cetera. But it's, it's a memoir that talks about my personal interactions with the peoples of this space and how I could not avoid the conversation of race because one, I was likely the first person, the first black person that a lot of these folks, be it in Georgia, Ukraine, Russia, Moldova, you name it, had ever met. And so it was a, and so because of that, I had a very different experience from my peers in Peace Corps or Fulbright in the manner in which I dealt with racism, the manner in which I dealt with all, you know, friendships were just vastly different. And so with Black Men on the Steps, it's really about how. I felt like as a black person who who grew up in Detroit and who grew up poor, that helped me to understand the plights and the circumstances of Russian people and Georgians and, and, and Ukrainians um, who are dealing with oppression, who are dealing with, in the case of Ukraine or Georgia, Russian imperialism, right? And, you know, so because my story of growing up in Detroit deals with uh, ur racist urban planning and it deals with how um, the ways in which America suppresses black progress. I took that experience and, and that framework to understand how Ukrainians are dealing with their own types of oppression. The same thing with Georgians and understanding how Georgian people, you know, they say, you know, hey, you know, um, how Georgians and Slavic places are considered chordani, you know, how they're considered black mm -hmm. and what that means for them mm -hmm. and, and the solidarity that I felt with them. And I never thought that I would have this, these moments of solidarity with people who in America would be viewed as white. And my, and, and I explained mm -hmm. how in the European context that Ukrainians and, you know, and, and Georgians, et cetera, are not viewed as, you know, pure, quote unquote, pure Europeans in the larger context mm -hmm. in Brussels. And I know this, whether it be from high ranking politicians to the everyday people in this part of the world, they've told me this. 
And I just think it's fascinating right. that people, you know, as a black man, these people will come tell me that, hey, you know, we don't feel like Western Europeans treat us as though we are equals. And I just never thought that I would have those conversations. So the book is going to take you through all of those experiences that I've never spoken about before, about how I feel as a black man, I have so much in common with these quote unquote white folks in the former Soviet Union. Oh, that is fascinating. How is that? I, I'm really interested. How is that received, Terrell? How is it received? And was it received differently in different national contexts? Like, was it received differently in Ukraine or Georgia or Russia or Moldova? Did you hear yeah. That to me is fascinating. How, how, how was it differently received? Yeah, you're, you're vastly different. Now, the, the main thing we need to distinguish is that until I take out my passport, you don't know that I'm an American. So most people will assume that, hey, I'm from Nigeria because that's where most uh, Afri most most black people who are in this space, they're from the continent of Africa because oh, they absolutely. study there. Yeah, they, they study there. I, I knew there. a lot of Africans there, but not a lot of African-Americans. Yeah, I don't know a lot of African-Americans, okay? Because we're just not there in that same number right. because we're not there studying, et cetera. So once... The, the 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 most immediate difference that I felt was in Ukraine when I'm dealing with police in Georgia they don't stop you you know the Georgian police they right. didn't stop you right. now going now going now in Russia and in, in Ukraine yeah now in Ukraine though you have to remember I started going to Ukraine in 2009 and I go I spend about three months three to four months in Ukraine every year and I spend most right. of my and I spend most of my time in the Carpathian Mountains so. Right. So so now, ten years ago, look when I first when I first did my Fulbright, I I stopped counting the number of times cops stopped me at about thirty. Document documenti So, so yeah, yes, yes, da So 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 basically, I stopped counting at thirty. Okay, um, I will stop many more times. I just stopped that. I'm like, forget this. I'm not. I'm not going to count anymore. Now they don't. Now it's interesting. They've gone through a wide range of police reforms. They're still corrupt, but the cops don't stop me anymore. Right. You know, they just walk by. But I mean, some of them even speak English. That's another topic. Now in Georgia, right. it's a bit different because it's the Caucasus. And listen, you you have Russian. You know, you have Russian writers who have written disparagingly about people from the Caucasus. Okay, so right. so 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 basically, there is this feeling that. Um, the Russian street is like sabaki, you know, like, you know, like, um, right. you know, you know, like dogs basically. So there is, and two, just the culture is just vastly different in that it's, it's kind of a Mediterranean feel and people are a bit more chilled out and laid back and friendly, et cetera. Not saying that Ukrainians aren't friendly. They are, but, right. but, but Georgians, there's at least in my personal experience, there is this, when they saw me as a black person, there is this curiosity. And again, there is this conversation around solidarity that they felt. So the context of my interactions um, focus around our shared struggles, if you will, because they'll talk about the times that they're stopped and they're abused in Russia and elsewhere. Right. And they also ask me a lot of questions about race in America. Now, I get those questions in, in, in Ukraine as well. What about in Russia? I don't go to Russia as much, to be honest with you. And so I don't, I don't nearly as much, um, not, not at all. So in Russia, you know. And my um, African friends in Russia told me horror stories about how they were treated. And it was pretty obvious that it was the case. I was almost jumped by skinheads in Russia on several occasions. Now, I was, um, you know, I've had my run-ins with skinheads in Ukraine uh, as, as well. 
Um, but in Russia, it was it was really intense. The thing about Russia, and again, Russia is a great place. I love it. And I think it's a fascinating place that people are fine. I think that the Russian people are stereotyped. I think what was really unfortunate, and I, this is just, I have to say this for my, my little 30 second thing because I'm very passionate about it. I, I feel like uh, 2016 coverage of Russia and Russia Gate, as people call it, failed the Russian people because we didn't learn a doggone thing about Russians besides Putin and the fact that it's cold and they got a whole bunch of weapons and they're trying to kill us. I, I was, you know, so I, I'm very passionate about that. Russia is a, a really great place, but I, I just had to say that. Forgive me. But that's we, we got to make a distinction between Russia and the Kremlin. It, it, exactly. Yes. Yes. It, precisely. Right. So, so basically, it, you know, at my time there was pretty cool. It, it was just that, you know, it's um, I. I well, I was in my twenties when I went, but also. Russia, when you when you talk about race, you have to remember that I was in a I was in an orphanage that whole time, and I'll never forget that I saw some kids that were from Chechnya, you know, uh -huh. and people were saying, "Oh, well, these children are from Chechnya," and I didn't understand Chechnya back then because I was kind of new to the field, you know, and new to the country, and so I'm like, "Wow," you know, the the first thing that came to my mind, I'm like, "Wow, these white there are different types of white people in the world." <laughs> I mean, I, that was my innocent, young, you know, kind of version, kind of feel to this part of the world. And right. so one of the things that Russia did for me was that it, it opened me up to the complexity of, of how race functions in the world. And so it, for me, it was a great foundational base for me to understand everything. But most importantly, you know, I also have this, you know, it also taught me that um, Russia, listen, I look at Russia and America both as imperial nations, right? So I look at this whole, I look at everything through the, the lens of imperialism. United States and Russia, they are imperialist nations. And I know that ruffles a few feathers, but I think that it depends on your point of view as somebody who can step outside this door and get shot and killed by cops and, you know, just, you know, we have this 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 murder trial of a cop who killed George Floyd going on right now. Yep. Right. And here in the United yeah, States, yeah. I can be George Floyd just walking out and, you know, walking out my door in America. And for Putin, you know, it's interesting. Uh, remember that quote that, that was pulled where he said it takes one to know one when, you know, in response in the response to being called a killer. What's interesting is that the news outlets did not really highlight the rest of his talking or the rest of his points right if you listen to that full video clip of him talking he talks about the discrimination and things like that that black people face in america and now do i believe that putin gives a dog on about race and everything of course he doesn't doesn't mean he's no, wrong it's an old trope that they pull out it doesn't mean but it doesn't mean he's wrong though okay that's the whole thing and so but those are things that i studied early on when i was traveling through russia and I always had this very nuanced approach to Russia, you know, uh, this this whole idea of good versus evil. I don't use that platform because I think they both are in their own ways. Do I think that America obviously in the in ways of human rights is ahead of Russia? Yes, I do. Of course I do. That doesn't negate the fact that we are without our criticisms. But it overall, you know, being in Russia, it, it really made me think critically about 
the woe is me mindset in the foreign policy space when we're analyzing Russia. And so because of that experience, I have more nuance when I, when I view the country. Right. No, and this is another reason why I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading your book. We're bumping up against the end here, but there is one other thing I wanted to get your thoughts on. And that is, I, I, I kind of telegraphed it in the first half, where I talked about you know the, the obvious Russian attempts to exploit uh, issues of race in America in trying to you know divide Americans, turn us against each other. This is a, I see this as a national security threat, quite frankly. And there was a Kremlin white paper that didn't get a lot of notice. I wrote about it in my blog back in back in 2013 or 2012, if I'm not mistaken, and which basically was a laid out a plan. This is how we do this. This is how we drive a wedge, you know, in Western countries. And one of the one of the issues was race. Now. How do you see the relationship between combating racism in America and enhancing our national security in terms of this? Because if we can decrease the polarization in this society, right, to the extent that we do that, we enhance our national security. And we are, you know, we are not polarized more on any issue, you know, than race. That is the most polarizing issue in America right now. It is America's original sin, and it remains our most polarizing issue. How do you see the relationship between dealing with this domestic issue that we as Americans need to work through and enhancing our national security at the same time when a hostile foreign power is attempting to exploit this um, and use this weakness in our society against us. I don't think it's especially hard. And so let's, let's uh, so to directly answer your question, we have to realize that both America and Russia our imperialist nations. So when you think about the framework of our foreign policy outlook, we have to ask ourselves, how devoted are we to imperialism? How, how, how um, devoted are we to neoliberalism, the use of the military, the use of, you know, uh, of, of capital, capitalism, which is exploitive in, in its nature and in its genesis, right? Um, how devoted are we to the, you know, to, to the use of the military in, in our you know, and capitalism in order to advance the goals of the United States. That's a philosophical question that I think is at the heart of not only foreign policy in America, but just our own moral conscience as human beings, regardless of where we are in the world, right? Particularly if you're dealing with Russia, um, America, and then you have China as well, right? So that that's the main thing that we have to ask ourselves. So if we're talking about imperialism, we have to think about the idea that the 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 more that we exclude people of color outside outside of these conversations the weaker our foreign policy is because you don't have people who are thinking from perspectives that are different from your own so the orthodoxy of, of foreign policy is white male dominated and the way that we formulate foreign policy is it's all based on outlook. How do you want the world to be governed, right? And people have, a, a I think, a rudimentary understanding of this from domestic politics. How do you want your city government to treat you? You know, you want your trash picked up. You want your water to run. You want your utilities to function at a basic level. You know, you know stuff like that. Uh, from a foreign policy standpoint, we don't have that conversation because we don't really educate Americans enough on what do we want from the world, right? You know, and so the idea is about climate change, you know, which disproportionately impacts people of color. You have a whole continent in Africa, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Africa, in which they will be disproportionately impacted by climate change, even though they emit uh, the fewest levels of CO, you know, the fewest CO2 levels into the atmosphere, right? right? So, so 
go, going back to going back to um, Putin, you know, and going back to Russia, one of the you know this is not a new thing. So black folk um, have been going to Russia since the 1800s, but particularly during the night, you know, started during the 1920s in particular, um, because they were looking for a new political system that they felt would give them better equality, better treatment than they would get here in the United States. And so this lore to, you know, current Russian propaganda has a lot to do with the fact that our own domestic policy has failed black people. Okay, right. so let's just start there. And so you're naturally going to look for other ways and other countries that you feel is going to treat you better. And so the one of the more the most famous black person who tried to uh, who, who who gave com uh, communism a shot is Paul Robeson, right? And so if you really listen, so if if you really want to have an understanding uh, uh, of black despair, is if you look at Paul Robeson's speeches. By the way, if you heard him, he he spoke Russian pretty well. You know, like if you listen to his talk, right? And you know he's you know he sang in Russian and Yiddish and things like that. And so you have this long legacy. I'm not saying that black people went in droves, but they went. You know, and and you know, and and in smaller numbers, but but they also had a strong uh, imprint in the American South, right? With labor, right? You know, the problem right. with the but but the problem with the Russians, of course, with Stalin was that he used forced labor. I mean, literally, you know, pretty much de facto yeah. um, slavery, pretty much. Right? I mean, the labor camps and all those other things. So you know, um, so they so so they had their own issues, but black people were lured to this and continue to be lured. Um, lured by these calls of of Russia exploiting race because America has failed, and until we step up, um, but um, particularly with the GOP, and I'm saying this very objectively because you can go, it's it's documented. Um, you see it in Georgia, and just in today in Texas, I just wrote about this. You have this suppression of voter access. You know, fewer opportunities to go to the ballot box. That's something easy for Putin to explain. And again, he's right about that. And so as opposed to saying this is propaganda, we have to mm. decide as a country if we're really, you know, to, to, call, to, 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 um, to call him a liar and at every opportunity, uh, there are too many elected officials in this country that refuse to do so. Yeah, no, we, I mean, I, I, I would agree with that. We need to decrease the polarization and the inequality in our society. That will make us more resilient and that will make us safer from these attempts at, at foreign adversaries to to exploit our differences. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, these are issues that we as Americans need to work out, right? And, and we do ourselves a favor, and we do our national security a big favor by working on Terrell, I could continue this thing for hours, but I think my production team would probably kill me. So, <laughs> yeah, so we, we have to go to a real bar, Brian. Got to go to a bar either here in D.C. or you show me a cool one up there in New York City. I'm from actually from that part of the country. But um, I want you to promise you're going to come back on, man, because I, I want to continue this conversation. I want to get you in my regular stable of guests. When your book comes out, um, I don't know what the publication date is. Uh, my book comes out in fall of 2022 because I'm still I'm writing. I'm still going through the, right. the book is not going to be written for completely until the end of this year. But 
Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to coming on to your show because there are a lot of other, other yeah, things I, I want to talk about. I know, I know you're something of an expert in arms control, so maybe, you know, yeah. when the treaty starts being talked about, we'll have you on. But I hope this will not be your last appearance in the podcast because I've, I've truly, truly enjoyed this. Me too. Thank you so much. And on that note, we'll wrap it up because that is all we have time for today, unfortunately. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And joining me from New York City has been Terrell Jermaine Starr, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, a senior reporter at The Roots, host and founder of the podcast Black Diplomats, and author of the forthcoming book, Black Man on the Steps. Thank you again, Terrell, for an enlightening and fascinating discussion. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Leak is in the virtual control room, and he keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn handles our all-important post-production duties, making me and my guests sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Black Diplomats. Please subscribe to Black Diplomats on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Rate us on iTunes and give to our Patreon. Talk to y'all next week.